The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come now to your word, and we want to see you. We want to see what you have for us here. We want to love you more. We want to trust you more. So please come through your word by the power of your spirit and make much of Jesus. Lord, help us be changed and transformed from one degree of glory into the next, into the same image. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So set us free this morning by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, we continue this march through Acts. And, and what we're going to see today is just the, the, the tides beginning to turn in a significant way in the book of Acts. So we've seen some persecution, but it's going to kind of ratchet up a few notches now. And so there's this phrase that we, we love at Bethlehem, to live is Christ, to die is gain, from Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we love to have that phrase cross-stitched on pillows, right, and written on our favorite coffee mugs, maybe uh, put up with our Instagram posts in the morning, right, just the words, you can just kind of barely see them, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, but in reality, it's a pretty extreme statement. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And I want you to think about in this introduction how the believers in the early church would have had to process their lives as the events of Acts unfolded. In chapter 4, they were told not to speak about Jesus by the authorities. So so that's the kind of first resistance they get. In chapter 5, they're told not to speak again, but this time they're beaten for it. And these are not great distances apart. So this is escalating quickly. As the numbers grow and God is working, they're becoming more of a problem for the rulers. And so the the persecution will escalate as the church grows. And in chapter 7, we're going to see our first martyr. It is easy to say to live as Christ, to die as gain, when we live in a culture so unbelievably full of comfort that we can almost not imagine any real risk or persecution. Now you get a headache, you take some ibuprofen. Don't like how you look, you go get surgery. Don't have that thing that you remembered, you one-click buy it and you have it right away. I mean, we are just inoculated with comfort. And the early church was already getting messy. So it's not just there's persecution coming from the outside, but two people among you have already been put to death for offering false worship. That would have me taking things pretty seriously. Persecution is on the rise, and then there's these factions forming in the church. And not only is there going to be persecution coming, but you're beginning to get the idea, we're still sinners. We're still broken. Everything isn't right. Maybe it's time to just move on, right? This was fun for a while to be part of this movement, but life was getting pretty unpredictable and difficult if you were a believer. So if we think it's a rough time to be the church now in our day, think about what it 
would have been like to be the church then. So if you're in the early church, and you're deciding if you're going to live for the name of Christ, you're asking yourself things like, am I going to trust Him? I mean, really trust Him. Like with my whole life. Am I going to talk about Him? He told me I have to talk about Him. Am I going to keep talking about Him? Am I going to get baptized and align myself with this people, this movement, this church of Christ? And if you're going to be all in with Jesus, the answer has to be yes. To live is Christ. My whole life belongs to Him. My whole life is devoted to Him, and it's meant to help others trust Him. But in the early church... In order to say yes to that, to live as Christ, you would have had to have been able to say yes to the second phrase, to die is gain, because your living for Christ could actually lead to your suffering and your dying for Christ. Jesus said it. He's actually prayed several times in the choir room before this. In this world, you will have trouble. He said, take up your cross and follow me, right? Those would not be popular presidential campaign slogans. Want to know what I'm going to bring you? Trouble. Take up your cross and follow me. But that's what Jesus promises us. So knowing that trouble and suffering will come in the Christian life, what you'd have to ask yourself is, is he worth it? So kids, for you, there's this parable that Jesus told early on. And and here's the parable he told. I think it's so simple and profound. He told a parable of a man that was in a field, and as he was in this field, he found this expensive, valuable, it says most expensive, most valuable treasure in the whole world. But he didn't own that field yet. So if you found the best thing, the most valuable treasure in the whole world, what would you do? Well, what he did as he went and sold everything else in order to have that treasure. And that's where Acts is going to keep pushing us. And you too, kids. Kids, would you sell everything, give everything away you have, if all you had left was Jesus? Like if it wasn't just, I'm going to fight with my brother or sister for that toy. I'm going to fight about who gets to choose where we go to eat. I'm going to fight about what my favorite Christmas toy was. But instead, I have to give it all away. Would you do that if it meant you got to have Jesus? Right now, I mean, this, this feels so foreign to us. But right now, I mean, like a couple days ago, I got an email with global partners that are facing this very question. So we don't face it here right now in this way, but we have global partners that face this question. Will they live for Jesus in this place that is actively planning to persecute, arrest, kidnap, and hurt them? And I bring it up with kids because they have kids. And these kids are going to have to figure that out. Is it worth living for Jesus? And I'm not asking this question to, to shame us to give us a moment to pause and ask ourselves, ask ourselves for real, what, what is the driving purpose of our lives? And what, what drives your life? What is the, the heartbeat of your life? What is the rhythm of your life? Is it this? What does it really mean to live for Christ? 
with the freedom we have now, are we stewarding it for His name? Are our schedules, our checkbooks, our parenting, our marriages, our neighborhood presence, our social media presence, is it all being stewarded with the worth of Jesus Christ in view? I ask this question because I think if we're honest with Acts 6-7, to we can't not ask this question. This is what's at stake in the story of Stephen. The purposes of God will not be stopped. The numbers will actually continue to grow, but it will be advanced through suffering. Are you still in with Jesus if His purposes that will not be stopped, cannot be thwarted, will last forever, advance through suffering? And not suffering existentially, but suffering like you hurt. People close to you may be hurt. And they will be advanced by people convinced to their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I want us to be looking at the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7 with that lens in view, with that reality in view. So let's dive into point number one here. We get to see this divine power. So the question I just asked us, are we willing to live for Christ, is, is not when I'm in to be a guilt trip so that you kind of like pull yourselves up by your bootstraps like, I can do better. I can be better. I'm going to live for Christ, right? Better Instagram pictures, right? Better devotionals in the morning. That's not the goal. The goal is that you would breathe in the Word and breathe out prayer, that you would feel your need like we just kept singing in these songs that you go, I need more of Jesus. I need to press in. I need His power. I need His help. It's meant to be a probing question to press us closer to Jesus because that's where the power must come from. Remember, Acts 1.1, Jesus is working and teaching. Jesus is working and teaching by His Spirit. So look at verses 5 from last week and then verse 8 with me. Let's read those together. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Skip to verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So if you heard last week and thought, well, the elders do the spiritual things and the other people do the non-spiritual things, Nick really helpfully said, no, that's not the case. Everyone word in prayer, everyone service here is the first deacon and he's doing some serious spiritual things. So what do we see here? We see the witness of Stephen here. It says, a man full of faith full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power, doing wonders and signs. Hopefully you hear the word full. He's full. Why? Because he'd been filled. That's actually a category in the book of Acts that we're supposed to pick up on as we go through the book. We've seen it a few times. Peter was filled with the Spirit as he preached in chapter 2. Peter was filled with the Spirit again when he responded to the rulers in chapter 4. The Spirit filled the place the believers were praying at the end of chapter 4. Where does this fullness of power and grace and wisdom come from? Well, Acts would just make it very clear, not from him himself, but from the Holy Spirit. Remember chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. This fullness comes as an answer to prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So this filling comes as an answer to prayer. Are we praying like this as a people? Lord, fill us up. Lord, whatever they say, whatever they do, fill us up. What we want more than anything is just help us keep speaking of the name of Jesus. And, And why did they pray that? Well, they prayed that because Jesus promised it. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So as the, the persecution is coming, this isn't kind of a cocky people going, we got Jesus on our side, we're going to win. This is a people going, there's persecution, they're closing in, the walls are closing in, give us some of that power you promised. We need you desperately. Now, we can't make it on your own. We need your power. You promised it. Give it to us, please. They're crying to their Father for help. There's divine power that is poured out as these believers lean into the promises of God and His Word and gather together to desperately pray for help to make Him known. In other words, the Word is breathed in. Prayer is breathed out and power comes down. The Word is breathed in. Prayer is breathed out and power comes down. And when God's power comes down, no earthly scheme of man or Satan can stop it. Look at verse 10. It says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which He was speaking. Remember who He's debating with here. These are the experts. They've never lost a debate before. They've never been undone before. They've never been defeated this way before. And it says they cannot withstand the wisdom in the Spirit with which he is speaking. Stephen is preaching as a man full of faith and wisdom and power. And this wisdom and power is the very working and teaching of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Who can win a debate with these trained, learned rulers? Jesus! (laughs) Right? We saw him do it all throughout the Gospels. Have you ever made that connection? That's what's happening right now. Just like the rulers kept coming to Jesus, trying to win these debates, trying to trap Him in the Gospels, here Jesus is again winning the debates because He's the one working. He's the one teaching. Jesus is still here making the rulers look like fools. They cannot withstand the wisdom and spirit with which He was speaking because they cannot withstand Jesus. He has all the authority. He cannot be stopped. He has all the wisdom. And this is a, a great paradigm for just how this, this life in Christ works. So kids, there's this book I read. Maybe some of you have read it. It's a series I'm reading to my kids and it's called The Prince Warriors. Maybe some of you have read it. So in this book, there's this, this little guy named Ruach and he's kind of the, the one with all the power on the good side. And they're going against all these really huge ugly, nasty, strong monsters on the bad side. And there's this part in the book where this phrase, Ruach always says this to the kids, he always says, you have all you need. You have all you need. You have all you need. And he's going to send them into this epic battle, like this huge scene. And he says, I'm going to give you what you need now. And he, he gives them a little seed. He says, just make sure you keep it. Hold on to it. Keep it with you all the time. And they've seen, these, they've seen these dragons 
these huge robots that they're going to have to fight, and they're going, this seed is not going to be very helpful. And he says, you have all you need. When you need it, it'll turn into something totally different. And so what happens is they go into this mission, and in this moment where they're totally trapped on all sides, they have nowhere else to go, they remember, he said, hold up the seed. And they hold up the seed, and surrounding them is a shield. And they press on the shield, and they push these huge monsters off the cliff. So as they go on this mission, from now on, they always have their seed to protect them from the enemy. And whether you're a kid or you're an adult, this is the lesson. It's never about the size of our faith. And it's always about the power of the Savior we trust in. Right? That's what's going on here with Stephen. This isn't about Stephen. This is about Jesus. He's just trusting him. He's just holding up his seed of faith and Jesus is working and teaching and the enemy is fleeing. Stephen has faith and Jesus is working through him. And I hope this encourages all of us. Stephen is not an apostle. Right? He's just a man devoted to Jesus, full of faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, and King Jesus works in him and through him by the power of the Holy Spirit so powerfully that his adversaries cannot stand against him. They can't withstand his wisdom. So first we see divine power. Second we see diverse persecution. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. This point is short. But I think it's important. Nick pointed out last week the beauty of the diversity of the church of God. Right? The church of God is, is this family made up of a bunch of people that otherwise would never want to hang out together. But notice in this passage the diversity of the persecution that comes. These are people that are in Jerusalem now, but likely a group of Jews that have been imprisoned by Rome and later freed, and they have their origin in places like Asia, Asia Minor, Upper Africa. They're from all over the place. So, while the diversity of the church can and often does speak to the supremacy of the gospel to save all peoples, be united in Christ, we should not be surprised when a diversity of peoples comes together to oppose Jesus. See, both in the Bible. In other words, what the Bible is telling us over and over and over again is that the ultimate dividing line in the world has nothing to do with the color of your skin or the culture you come from, but if you follow Jesus or not. It's the ultimate dividing line. So a natural eye, especially in our day, looks around at the world, like we all do this too, and we make all sorts of judgments, identity statements, all sorts of labels, even within Christianity. Right? They're that kind of Christian. I'm this kind of Christian. And they're that kind of follower of Jesus. I'm this kind of follower of Jesus. And I would just say to you that that is probably more than anything a matter of our convenience. That's not happening in China, in the underground church. It wasn't happening here in the early church. A natural eye wants to look around and make all sorts of judgments and identity statements and all sorts of labels. But the dividing line of the world, world has been and always will be, what do you do with Jesus Christ? So I would say to you this morning, when you look around you, be wise. Have supernatural eyes when you think about who your allies and who your enemies are because in the end it comes down to 
Are you with Jesus or not? And if you're with Jesus, I'm with you and we're together for the cause of his name. Point number three, a desperate plan. So we've seen the power of God at work in Stephen. We've seen a diverse persecution. Now we get to see this desperate plan to stop the followers of Jesus. So look at verses 11 to 14. It says, And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So when you get beat pretty soundly in a public debate, what do you do? You go underground. Or you begin to slander and gossip. They secretly get up, get this group of people to accuse him. Does this sound familiar? This happened with Jesus, right? They set up false witnesses. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, with their secret plot and false accusations in order to bring them before the council. So here Stephen is, like his Savior, supposed to see this again, enduring a false trial with false witnesses, secret plots to make an innocent man look guilty and accused of blasphemy. This is an echo of the Gospels. Jesus and Stephen will die. Both of them, before they die, will ask for forgiveness for those who are persecuting them and executing them. Both are carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit to endure suffering and death for the glory of God and the good of the world. And they say here that he speaks blasphemous words against Moses and God. And I think they explain what they mean later with the statement that says he is speaking against this holy place and the law. That's the accusation. He's speaking against the temple, the customs, our whole system of worship. And I just want to be clear at this point about how evil and insidious this plan is. If you go back and you look through the church documents and you look through the the laws at this point among the Jewish leaders, at this time, the only way, the only way the Jewish council could bring an order of a sentence of death was for blasphemy of the sacred place of the temple. All other charges they wanted to bring for the cause of death would have to go through Rome. There was one charge they could bring that would stick with death. And so when they are making this particular accusation, they're making it on purpose because they want Stephen gone for good. This is tactical. This is strategic. This is not just, oh, we heard these things wrong. This is them going, what can we grab onto to murder him? So what exactly did they hear him say? Well, they they quote it at the end. They say, Jesus of Nazareth, We'll destroy this place and we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So we have to ask the question, well, did Jesus say that? Because Stephen would be quoting him, so, so what did Jesus say? And we have to admit that Jesus got kind of close to saying something like this in John 2. So in John 2, Jesus has just gotten done making a whip and driving everyone out of the temple, so not exactly a ringing endorsement of the temple from Jesus either. And here's what it says in verses 18 and 19 of John 2. The Jews said to him, after he's just made a whip and driven everyone out, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? 
And here's how he answers. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we find out later in, in the trials that Jesus goes through before the Sanhedrin and all that, they make the same accusation. You said you're going to destroy the temple, and Jesus is silent, doesn't say anything back. Now we find out a few verses later in John 2 that he's talking about his body. But there is a sense, there is a sense Now, they're misquoting Stephen, they're misquoting Jesus, but there is a sense in which the accusations seem true and are the very essence of the gospel. Jesus' body was the temple, and when it was crucified and he died, the veil of the physical temple was torn. So there is some destruction happening in the physical temple. So why? Why was the veil torn? What's going on? Well, it was signaling that no longer was there separation between God and man where only certain priests could enter into the Holy of Holies. Instead, by the blood of Jesus, there would be a new royal priesthood, the blood-bought family of God, that could come into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies whenever they wanted because of the sacrifice of Christ. So Jesus, in a sense, was the perfect high priest that created a priesthood of all believers. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that created a people whose lives would be living sacrifices. Jesus was creating a new temple, the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit. So in essence, this is the good news of the gospel. Right? The temple is gone. The customs are destroyed. And even though they're misquoting Jesus and misrepresenting Stephen here, Jesus really did come to put an end to the temple and the customs of Moses as they knew it. The false witnesses quoted what Stephen said about Jesus wrongly. But even more than that, here's what they really missed. What they got wrong was that this was not blasphemy. It was fulfillment. They're just reading their Bibles wrong. They're missing Jesus. Yes, Jesus was ending the system of sacrifice and worship at the physical temple, but instead was bringing the fulfillment. This was not blasphemy. This was victory. This is the victory they've been looking for. It's not blasphemy. Not ending in a way that dishonors God. This is victory. In Christ, no longer would there be a need for perpetual sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats that could never save from sins, but Jesus would die once for all to give all who would trust him access to the Father all the time. No more pilgrimage, right? No more running to Jerusalem. No more needing someone else to go in there for you. No more lay your hand on a goat. He goes outside the camp, right? Jesus is the once for all sacrifice right now in this place. Do you realize he's above us, singing over us? We have access to the throne room of grace. That's an amazing reality. We are forgiven once for all, 24-7 access to the holy of holies. And because of this access and this new people that's created by this gospel, Jesus continues to work and to teach for the glory of his name. His plans cannot be stopped by secret plots and false accusations. He will turn what is for evil by those who make it for the good of his people and the glory of his name. He can't be stopped. He can't be thwarted. The temple and all of its customs have gone by the wayside, not as blasphemy, but as victory in Jesus Christ. Point number four, divine presence. Look at verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face 
of an angel. These are the verses you always look forward to reading commentaries on. They get real weird. Um, so, but I think, I think the main point is clear here. If people were making false accusations about me and trying to get me killed, I wonder if others would describe me this way. Just the face of an angel. <laughs> just, just happy as a clam. <laughs> so at a minimum, this has an obvious meaning. It, it implies a deep peace, a deep comfort, a deep rest in the midst of horrible persecution. Now don't get me wrong, sometimes when we think of angelic, we think of like babies on harps on clouds, right? We're all kind and gentle and careful like that, but that's not what's going on here, right? Angels are normally coming to pronounce judgment or to bring a message. And that's exactly what Stephen's going to do in chapter 7. He's going to unleash an indicting sermon against these rulers. But what I want us to see is that strong sermon, that proclamation of Christ is going to flow out of a heart completely at peace with God and knowing that to live is Christ, to die is gain. You don't say to the rulers what Stephen says to the rulers in chapter 7 unless you're at peace with God and know to live is Christ, to die is gain. And most commentators want to think that we should see even more, and I think I agree with them, that with all this talk the rulers are making about Moses, this shining face is meant to make us think back to him. So listen to Exodus chapter 34, verses 34 to 35. Here's what it says. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So here they are, accusing him of blaspheming the temple, blaspheming Moses, uh, you're you're going to change all his customs. You're going to ruin all his ways. But his shining face is meant to show what we've been saying throughout this whole book. Stephen himself is a part of the new temple of God. Part of this blood-bought family with 24-7 access to the presence of God. The kind of access only Moses had in the Old Testament. But now we all have in the New Testament. We all have it. Kids, do you know that if you trust in Jesus to forgive your sins, that you can talk to God whenever you want to. It is the most underrated thing in the world. You can talk to God whenever you want to. Like if I got done with 40 years of ministry here, and the only thing that happened is you all prayed faithfully, I'd be like, praise God. Like we have access to the holy of holies. 24-7 access, kids. You can ask God for help when you're confused and he hears you. You can ask him for forgiveness when you sin against your brother or sister or mom or dad. You can ask him to comfort you when you're afraid of that thunderstorm or what's going on in the world. This is this theme we continue to see. God is with his people by the power of his spirit. He's with us. He's with us now. The word was breathed in, prayer was breathed out, and power came down as they were filled with the spirit. And this kind of peace that comes with God's presence is available to us today in the midst of pain and persecution. I just, I just long for us to take Jesus up, up, Jesus up on his offer to find rest for our weary souls. Just to rest in him. Have all of you be a bunch of Stevens out there 
saying crazy, bold things because you're just so at rest in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's application to die is gain. So we know what happens next in chapter 7. Stephen's going to give his sermon. Pastor Daniel's going to unpack that in a couple weeks. He said I should preach all of that at once, and so I said you can preach it all at once. So he's going <laughs> to He's going to preach it in a couple weeks. <laughs> so Stephen doesn't back down at all. He decides by the power of the Spirit that to live is Christ. The good news of a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, a resurrected Savior, and 24-7 access to God is worth talking about no matter the cost. That's what's driving Stephen here. So he speaks. And we'll see. He speaks boldly. And then he's killed. And we'll get to that in three weeks. And this kind of reality has happened all throughout church history and continues to happen in the hardest places in the world today. This, this is being threatened right now among some of our global partners. So when you take up that global partner calendar, plead. Beg for help. Beg for wisdom. Beg for mercy. Beg for protection. Beg for the gospel to go forth. Beg that deep into their bones they know to live as Christ, to die as gain. Get yourself some resources on what's going on in the the world. Get them for your kids. Study church history so that you're not so, like Bruce said in the welcome, so consumed, so tunnel vision right here that you think what's going on right here is like horrible persecution. We we just got to get out of our own little circles. See what God's doing to have this sink down into our bones. But you know what happens in the death of Stephen and the persecution of the church? See, Pastor Kenny's going to preach on church planting next weekend. And now in America, we think of church planting as like, here's a strategy, right? Here's this unreached place, this really hard place, and we plan, and we plan for years, and we fund, and we should do all of that, and we should do way more of it. And I hope the South Campus will become a place that loves church planting that way. But the first way that churches were planted is that the people of God were persecuted. And then they scattered. But when they scattered, God's presence went with them. And Jesus kept working and teaching among them wherever they went. What the world means for evil, God turns for good. So Stephen dies and goes into the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The church is scattered. The gospel spreads. The power of God cannot be stopped. The plans of God cannot be thwarted. The death of the people of God often bears the fruit of the eternal life of many, many more. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Here's how Jesus said it in John 12, verses 24 to 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is what happens with Stephen This is what's happening all over the world right now. You should come on March 13th. Bruce already mentioned it, but March 13th here at the South Campus, we're going to hear stories from the field of our missionaries and their persecutions and their trials. And you should hear it to come and just expand your horizon. Like this many people should be here to come and hear our missionaries speak about this. 
And this is what happens as we radically orient our lives around Jesus and mocking and ridicule and curses come. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus is worth it in this life. He's worth it. I hope you know he's worth it. Where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. Like even if the worst thing happens for 80 years and you have to endure it for 80 years, where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. And the beauty of living for Jesus is that nothing is ultimately up for grabs when we die because even though we lose everything in this life, we're in the presence of Jesus forever. Nothing is ultimately up for grabs. So here's my prayer for us. Would we have the word come into us, prayers go up, and power come down? I want fresh power for God's people. I want a fresh pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Like, I, I hope you can sense it with me. Like, we can, we can look at the pandemic, and there's been lots that's sad and hard about the pandemic, but I've had three words on my mind for the people of God since, like, the second week of the pandemic, and that's been refinement. He's refining us. He's making us see what's really most important. He's setting our eyes on Jesus as our only comfort. He's stripping other comforts away. He's stripping our, our rhythms and our predictability away. Even for you kids or your school has been like this and parents, your school has been like this and it's been a mess. Isn't he preparing us that Jesus is the only place we can rest? He's just refining us. Like are we going to go after him or all these other things? Then I've been praying for refreshment. Right? Refinement, that's painful. But once we let go of this stuff and come to Jesus, we find, oh, he really is the bread of life. There really is rest for my soul. I really have been running on a treadmill after all these other things, and he's really what I've needed. So I've just been praying for refreshment. And then I've been praying for a radical redeployment. You go, man, I've been refined, man. I've been sinful. I've just seen all these idols fall away. I've found rest in Jesus. And man, I'm going to tell that person at my work about him. I'm going to tell the barista about him. I'm going to tell the school board about him. I'm going to tell my co-op about him. I'm going to tell my kids about him. I'm going to come home with the joy of the Lord to be my strength for my wife and my neighborhood and our missionaries. What I've been praying for is that we would let every other allegiance and every other mission kind of fade to the rearview mirror. And instead, fill our neighborhoods and the nations with the name of Jesus. And when I say that, just so I'm clear, when I say let's fill the neighborhoods with the name of Jesus, what I mean is you tell someone else about Jesus. I don't just mean think about it. Oh, I should do that. I mean, tell someone. If you've got kids, have them make a card, right? I mean, Stone is just making cards for all of our neighbors presenting the gospel all the time. That's all he knows to do, right? They need to know Jesus. Tell someone about Jesus. Like, even if it seems weird, I've been doing this new thing, and it, I'll be honest, I get lots of weird looks, but I go up, right, in a coffee shop, and I say, hey, how's your day going? And they say, good, how's yours? And I say, I'm thankful for Jesus. And they just, they normally don't say anything else. They're like, what can I get you today? Um, <laughs> And that's okay. I want to go to the same places over and over again. So eventually this weird guy who says, I'm thankful for Jesus, maybe they go, maybe I can talk to him about something. So go to the same place and be the weird Jesus guy. I want you to make time, actual time as a family, as a small group, in your house. Get your kids involved. 
to pray for and reach out to those around you for the sake of Jesus. I want us to love our enemies. Don't want us to be caught up in the culture of outrage. This is like waking up like, who can I be mad at today? You. You're the one today. I'm going to stew on that and find other people who agree with me. What if you love them instead? (laughs) This is my manuscript. You can tell. Um, But that's what I want for us. I, I, I want us to be a people that are just so abiding in the true, genuine life of Christ, breathing in the Word, breathing out prayer, power coming down, making much of Him. And when that happens, we can simply pray for His power and watch Him work. And when He works in us and through us, weak and foolish as we are, no one can withstand Him. So let me pray for us, then we're going to take a couple minutes. I'm going to let you pray as we get ready for communion. So Lord, we're going to come to the table here in a few minutes. And we need grace. We're not a cocky people who think we've got it all together. We confess that we're timid, afraid to share the name of Jesus, running hardest after our own comforts so often. But Lord, would you create in us now, would you, would you refine us in Jesus? Would you refresh us in Jesus? And would you radically redeploy us for the sake of Jesus? That these neighborhoods and the nations would be filled with the aroma of Christ. So Lord, now as we take a few minutes to reflect, be with us. Help us bring our sins and our idols and our pains and our sufferings before you with transparency and honesty because you already know our hearts. Praise in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.